If you have your copy of scripture, go ahead and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 9 this morning. We are picking back up in our study through the book of 1 Corinthians. We're in 1 Corinthians 9, and we're going to look this morning at verses 1 through 18, which is really the first section of this chapter, 1 Corinthians 9, 1 through 18. And as usual, I know you're going to find it helpful to have your Bibles open and to be reading along with me in them. If you're using the church Bible, you'll find this on page 956. Before we do, let's pray. Let's ask God to bless the preaching and hearing, receiving and believing and applying of his word to us this morning. Let's, let's pray. Father, we thank you that we come to this most important time in your worship when we sit and we hear you speak. Lord Jesus, your word has said that you came to Ephesus and that when Paul preached, you proclaimed peace, that it was you preaching through him. And so, Lord Jesus Christ, we ask that you would speak this morning, that you would be proclaiming your word to us as the great prophet of the church, that you would be speaking into the souls of the men and women and boys and girls here, that you would take every word and every portion of this word and that you would write it indelibly on our souls by your Holy Spirit. Lord Jesus, we bless you. We bless you for the scriptures. We pray that you would enable us to receive it and keep it and bear fruit with patience, that you would give us good hearts, good soil on which the seed of your word might fall. Lord Jesus, thank you. Thank you for speaking in advance. We pray these things in your name. Amen. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, beginning in verse 1, Paul is continuing what he's just said to the Corinthians about laying aside the privilege they thought they had of eating meat offered to idols in temples um, when there were weaker brothers that saw that there was a problem with that. And Paul is talking now, carrying on in this idea, shifting now to himself and um, why he has done what he has done and why he is who he is. And so he writes this, 1 Corinthians 9 verse 1, Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not my workmanship in the Lord? If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. This is my defense to those who would examine me. Do we not have the right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife, as do the other apostles or the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? Do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same? For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain. Is it for oxen that God is concerned? Does he not certainly speak for our sake? It was written for our sake. Because the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share this rightful claim to you, do not we even more? Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right. But we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple and those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings in the same way the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. But 
I have made no use of any of these rights, nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision. For I would rather die than have anyone deprive me on my ground for boasting. For if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting. For necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. For if I, if not of my own will, I am still entrusted with a stewardship. I'm sorry, verse 17. For if I do this of my own will, I have a reward. But if not of my own will, I am still entrusted with a stewardship. What then is my reward? That in preaching, I may present the gospel free of charge, so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God endures forever. Well, I sometimes like to use a bit of sanctified imagination and import the Apostle Paul into the 21st century, and I like to think that if the Apostle Paul were applying for a pulpit in the PCA in one of the more lucrative areas of the country where you have a university nearby, perhaps Princeton or Harvard or New York University, and Paul were putting in a CV, he was putting in his resume, and I like to imagine what it would be like when the search committee got that resume. And they looked at that resume and they said, okay, the next one, here we go, we have this guy Paul. Oh, wait, he says he's an apostle, wow. And uh, as they go through the list and they read his testimony, because they always ask for your testimony, and Paul says his testimony was that Jesus bodily and visibly appeared to him and dropped a new heart in him when he was seeking to persecute Jesus and Christians. And you could imagine the search committee being like, that's a bit intense, that's an intense testimony. I mean, we like the kids that say they've never known a day, that they've never known the Lord Jesus and grown up in the church, and we want somebody that grew up in a Christian home, and this Paul's a little extreme. And then you can imagine the apostle as he goes on and talks a little bit about his interest, how his main interest is reaching the lost, and that he cares preeminently about reaching the lost, and that you know, sometimes he doesn't even go out to eat with Christians at certain restaurants because he really wants to reach these people that might be offended that he's eating at those restaurants. And, and Paul then goes on as they read this and they think, well, let's find out about his wife. What's his wife's name? We really, we really want to have a good pastor's wife in this church. And they're like, wait a minute, he's not married. There's something obviously wrong with this man. He's not married, no wife, no kids. And then, to cap it all off, Paul says at the end of his resume, and you know what? You don't even have to pay me because I work at a factory making tents for REI and I want to keep doing that and I just want to minister in your church for free. I guarantee you, Paul would never get a call to any of those churches. Now, why do I say that? I say that because Paul planted this church. This church was in a very lucrative area of the world. It was an intellectual center point. It was a capital for Greek philosophy and wisdom and knowledge. And we saw at the beginning of this book that one of the big problems in Corinth was that they loved intellect. They wanted their preachers to be the smartest and the best and the rhetorically most sophisticated. And Paul said that they were divided, that some said, I'm of Paul and I'm of Apollos and I'm of Cephas and we're of Christ. And that they were boasting in human wisdom and learning. And Paul, who honestly had more wisdom and learning than probably all of them, said, I checked that at the door and I came to you and I only wanted to know Jesus Christ and him crucified. And Paul came with a single mind and a single focus. Paul was, in the words of Ian Hamilton, a one thing man. 
And he came to that church with that one thing and he labored and he was diligent and he gave all of his prayer and all of his tears and all of his efforts to the establishment of this church. And that church then took it and they turned it on him and they rejected him and they despised him and they argued with him and they challenged everything that he said. He had written a letter to them. They had written back to him. They had said, Paul, we don't agree with this. What about this, Paul? What about this, Paul? What about this, Paul? Now, over the first eight chapters, Paul says, well, what about this? I'll answer that. And Paul answers all these questions about marriage and singleness and divorce and division and law court and suing and all of these things that were going on in Corinth. But Paul holds off, doesn't he? He holds off defending himself until this chapter. Paul has held off and held off and held off. And now Paul feels in God's wisdom that it's time. It's time that Paul defend his apostolic ministry in the Lord. And so shifting now from that last section in chapter 8 where Paul has talked about laying aside their supposed freedom of eating meat that has been offered in an idolatrous ceremony, much like going to a mass perhaps, or in Middle Eastern countries going into a Muslim mosque, the insider movement saying, oh, become a Muslim to reach Muslims. Paul has said no. You need to forfeit that because of those whose consciences are weak. You need to forfeit whatever supposed freedom you have. And I've oftentimes done that. I have even refused to eat meat that I know is lawful for me to eat because I don't want to offend my brother. I want to win all people to Christ. And so for the sake of the gospel, Paul was willing to lay aside his rights. And this whole section is really Paul telling us two things. First, he is telling us that the apostolic rights ought to be laid out, that there are such things as apostolic rights. And then he's going to tell us about the apostolic motivation to lay aside those rights. He's going to tell us, first of all, about the apostolic rights themselves. And then he's going to tell us about the laying aside and the motivation for laying aside the apostolic rights. And notice there in verse 1, Paul sets out two questions that kind of uh, overarch the whole chapter. There's going to be 16 questions in 18 verses. So if you don't like people that ask questions to teach things, you're not going to like this section. Um, my brother-in-law once said to me, we were playing disc golf when I was much younger, and I had found it very effective to teach things by asking questions. I'd say things like, okay, now what does verse 31 say? And he finally stopped and he said, don't ask me any more questions, just tell me. <laughs> Paul is agitated, as it were, and so Paul asks a series of questions, you can count them, 16 in all, and he begins with two that kind of set the tone for everything else he's going to say. He says, am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Now remember, Paul's apostolic ministry has been under attack. The fact that Paul has been working for free has not helped the way that the Corinthians viewed him. The Corinthians wanted, remember, their, their apostles and their speakers and their preachers to be very refined and dignified and set on a pedestal and become an example and rival any of the best Greek philosophical uh, or uh, rhetoricians in, in Corinth. They wanted their pastors to be the best. And if you look at the history of Greek philosophy, the Greek philosophers were often the best paid. That was a very lucrative position. You made a very a bountiful living off of that. I think it was Aristotle who laid that aside. Perhaps it was Socrates, one of the two, laid it aside and didn't take money and was criticized heavily for not taking money. I think in the same way, Paul has been in part criticized because he hasn't taken money. 
And so his apostolic ministry has come under attack as if, well, Paul, if you were a real apostle, why wouldn't you have all these things? If you really were an apostle of Jesus, why wouldn't you be insisting that we pay you like we pay all our other teachers? And so Paul says to them, am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Now, notice there in verse 1 that Paul begins to to outline the apostolic ministry by explaining what it was that made an apostle an apostle. He said, have I not seen Jesus Christ? And so at the very foundation of what an apostle was, was someone that witnessed the risen, resurrected Jesus. You'll remember when Judas hung himself, that the apostles went and they were to find one from among them who saw Jesus from the day of his ministry till his resurrection. Now, lots of people were witnesses of Jesus's resurrection that were not apostles, But you couldn't be an apostle without witnessing the resurrection of Jesus. And Christ appears to Paul as one out of time to make him the new and preeminent apostle to carry on the gospel to the Gentile world. And Paul, in a sense, says to the church at Corinth, nothing you may think about me matters. What matters is that I've seen Jesus and he made me an apostle. Now that's important to us because a majority of our New Testament was written by Paul. And if you've ever stopped to think about it, why do we accept what I'm preaching through and what you read in the 13 letters that Paul wrote? Why do we accept that as the word of God? We accept it because he was an apostle. The only reason we accept it as God's word is because he was an apostle. His apostolic ministry put the stamp of divine blessing and significance on what he wrote and did. It was a very unique thing, and it's very important that we understand this because um, in this day, Paul's apostolic ministry is questioned all the time. I have friends that go to Princeton who are taught that Paul didn't write any of the letters in the New Testament, that they were all written hundreds of years later by people pretending to be Paul. Well, I, I don't think I want to pretend to be Paul. Paul didn't have a great life. He got beaten a lot. He was hungry. He didn't get paid. It doesn't make a lot of sense to pretend to be Paul. Paul wrote these letters. These letters are binding. These letters are authoritative. And as Bunyan, and I love the way Bunyan describes Paul in the Pilgrim's Progress when Christian comes into the interpreter's house and he says, who is this grave man with a Bible in his hand looking up to heaven? And and interpreter says, this is the man that will lead you on your journey. This is the man that has been appointed to guide you on this long and arduous journey. This is the man that has begotten many children through his ministry. This is the man who has become a father to so many in the faith. And so Paul now, amazingly, having to defend his apostolic ministry to a church that he had planted, is telling them, am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not my workmanship in the Lord? It would be like you all saying to me, who have been here from the beginning in two years, you were never our pastor. Who do you think you are? You, what are you? The church in Corinth had rejected Paul, and they had heaped scorn on Paul. And notice what Paul says in verse 2, because there were outsiders telling the church that Paul really wasn't the real deal. They said, if to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. Paul basically was saying, if you really want to know if I'm an apostle, you're the proof that I'm an apostle. No one had ever taken the gospel to Corinth. 
Paul came in there when there was no church, there was no search committee, there was no bankroll to pay an apostle, there was no such thing as gospel ministry in Corinth. And Paul had preached the gospel and the Holy Spirit had worked and a church had been born and Paul had gone in there and had labored and had established that church through blood, sweat, and tears. And he says, you are the proof of my apostleship in the Lord. And then notice now as he defends the apostolic rights in verse 3, he says, this is my defense to those who would examine me. Do we not have the right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife? And do we have no right to refrain from working for a living? Three things Paul addresses to them. One, I'm an apostle. I'm free to eat and drink whatever I want to eat and drink, right? Just like he had told the church they were free. Two, I'm an apostle. I'm free to marry a wife if I want to marry a wife. The other apostles have done it. It's only me and and Barnabas that haven't. Or I'm sorry, it's only me that hasn't. And then third, Paul says, don't I have a right to be paid for gospel ministry? And so what Paul is doing is he's asserting the rights of apostles and subsequent gospel ministers. He's asserting their rights because the the Corinthians were so messed up in how they understood anything at this point. Now, Paul's passage is very difficult. Paul's going to argue um, in a very unique, logical way, and it's very difficult. I think when Peter says there's many things difficult, this may actually be one of those sections. Paul is going to argue for the rights of the apostles, and then he's going to turn around and say, but I don't want them. And so what lies behind Paul's reasoning is not just an assertion of what rights gospel ministers have. What lies behind that is his freedom to withhold from those things for the spread of the gospel. And so Paul's doing... Something very, very interesting. Notice when he says in verse 7, he uses a series of illustrations to explain why he has every right to be paid by this church, even though he doesn't want it. He says, who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? There is economic, if, if I can say economic, and, and vocational and natural examples of those who work benefiting from the work they do. Those who benefit, those who plant a vineyard eating from its fruit. Who plants a vineyard and doesn't eat from its fruit? Who goes to war at his own expense? Who does these things in the natural world? Paul's saying, by all reasonableness, gospel ministry should be supported. Now, there are still some today, though they're few in number, and they usually end up in a house church, who think that Gospel ministers shouldn't get paid. I've, heard, I've met quite a few over the years, and they'll say, well, Paul labored for the gospel, and he didn't get paid. And that's, that's what we're supposed to do. The Quakers held this doctrine. There have been groups all throughout history where they take Paul's statement here that he wants his reward from preaching the gospel without charge, without getting any money. Paul is defending the principle that ministers are to get paid for their labors. I am very thankful to you. I am very thankful that you pay me. My wife is even more thankful. <laughs> my wife is a very happy woman that you pay us for, for my ministry. Paul understood the rightness, and Paul understood that other churches were supporting their pastors and other apostles. Paul actually says that he took money from other churches, the Macedonian churches and the other churches. He'll actually say, I robbed them to minister to you. And so Paul is 
proving one enormous point, and that is while gospel ministry is to receive remuneration and payment for faithful laboring, and he'll go on to say, you shall not muzzle an ox while he treads out the grain. We'll get into that in a second. Nevertheless, while that is right and the norm, Paul was free and Paul set that aside. Now, we'll come back to that in a second. I want to talk just about briefly about how he proves this from the law in in chapter 8. If it wasn't enough for Paul to go to a couple natural illustrations, a soldier, a, a man who plants a vineyard, one who tends the flock, now Paul says, well, fine, let me prove this to you from the law. Let me show you where in the law of Moses I get the principle of paying a minister for his labor. And so Paul picks up on this verse that he'll pick up on first, in First Timothy also, out of Deuteronomy, you shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain. Now... If you went to a good seminary, this would be, you would have to write a whole paper on this verse. I had to do that. You would have to write a whole paper on this verse. Is Paul spiritualizing? Is Paul allegorizing? What's going on? How do, how do we get, you shall not muzzle an ox while he treads out the grain to pay your pastor well? Because that's what Paul does. Well, I think the principle is easy. Paul will say, does God really care about oxen? Ultimately, what does God care more about, oxen or a minister? A minister. What does God care more about, animals or people? People. Now, if God cared enough about a dumb oxen, a dumb ox, who is threshing grain for its master, and God is saying what is right is that that ox should be able to open its mouth and stop and eat some that it's threshing, it is more right that ministers get paid. That's what Paul has done. If God cared about ox getting some food while they labored, he cares more about people getting paid for their labors. Our Lord Jesus actually says in the Gospel of Luke, a laborer is worthy of his wages. Now, it's a touchy subject. I don't like preaching about money. I don't. But Paul says that. It's good. I do think it's instructive that God doesn't just care about the spiritual well-being of our souls, but he even cares about how his ministers, who are often despised in the world, are cared for by the church. Isn't that wonderful? that wonderful? That the God we serve doesn't just care about the spiritual well-being of our souls, but he even cares about the justice and the rightness of how his ministers are treated in the church by people that oftentimes don't want to treat them with respect. Um, Now, obviously, this can be abused. There's dangers to ministers and money. I think one of the qualifications is not greedy for money, precisely because there are dangers. But Paul had forfeited this right And now he's asserting it as a right, lest there be any confusion. Well, notice, notice what Paul says there in verse 10 and in verse 11. He says, if we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? Paul is, is clearly saying that he didn't want their physical possessions, that he would lay that aside. And notice what he says in verse 12. If others share this rightful claim on you, do we not even more? So if all these other teachers who were not apostles were getting this, don't we as apostles have a greater right to this? And then notice what Paul says. Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. So in the second place, Paul is going to tell us about the motivation of, gospel, of apostolic ministry in laying aside the right that he had. What motivates a man? What motivates a man to say, I don't want you to pay me, but I'm going to labor night and day with 
prayers and tears and soul outpouring. It's interesting when you read about Paul's sufferings, a night and a day, shipwreck, stoned, trials outside, fears inside. And on top of all this, my deep concern for all the churches. It was almost like Paul was saying, I have all of these sufferings and struggles, but what's the mounting piece, the top, the the piece all the way at the top is my deep concern for the churches. And it was a deep concern to see the gospel rooted in the churches that led Paul to say, I don't want you to pay me. I'll keep making my tents. And notice, notice what he says. He says there in verse 15, he says, I have made no use of any of these rights, nor am I writing these things to secure any provision. So when Paul defends the apostolic right, and when he defends that ministers ought to be paid well, he's not doing it so that they would feel guilty and start paying him. Because he tells us there in verse 12 that he doesn't want any obstacle to get in the way of the gospel of Christ. Here's the principle. The gospel is so big and so powerful. The everlasting gospel is so important that the apostle Paul would forfeit a paycheck and he would preach that gospel even if it meant he would die in the preaching of it. That the gospel is so important that the Apostle Paul would die from hunger if need be in the preaching of it. You see, Paul had a right assessment about Jesus Christ crucified and risen. How many of us play with the things of God? We, We play with them. We think they're trite. Oh, that's nice. Yeah, I know that. We got that. I heard that my whole life. The Apostle Paul would forfeit his monetary remunerations from a church. He poured himself out night and day because he understood that the gospel was the biggest and the greatest and the most important thing in all of creation, the everlasting gospel that had been entreated to him. And so that Paul could say, I don't want anything, nothing to get in the way of the gospel. Think about all the churches. You know, When a young man goes to seminary, he gets excited. He's going to go out. He's going to be the next Charles Spurgeon. He's going to change the world. And then he encounters his first search committee. And they don't want to pay him. They want to pay him 20000 less than an assistant pastor got 10 years prior. And they want him to work 20 more hours a week than that guy did. And they want his wife to start Bible studies. And then you start prying into the church life and you see that there's bickering and there's fighting and the gospel's not the thing. And young men like that get disillusioned because they see church after church after church after church. And you know what? In the words of one of my dear friends, the church is just stinking worldly sometimes. The church is just worldly. It is. Worldly ways, worldly means, worldly thoughts. You know what? Sometimes, even under the guise of biblical principles, I have met many many in churches that trust in things that are just straight up worldly. They have no place in scripture. God has not given them to us for the advancement of the kingdom. What God has given us for the advancement of the kingdom is an everlasting gospel. And the apostle Paul could say, I determined to know nothing among you, but Jesus Christ and him crucified because he knew it was the power of God. And he knew that at the end of the day, 
and when the veil of this world is torn away and when all the nations are gathered before God like a great ocean of people gathered before their maker and all the consciences of men are laid bare like lambs cut open and laid out before God, that on that day the only thing that's going to matter is what the gospel did in your life or what the gospel didn't do in your life. And Paul understood that Jesus Christ really is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. He's every man's beginning and he's every man's end. And on Judgment Day, everyone is going to stand before the Lamb that was slain. And unless they're covered in that blood, it will be everlasting torment and misery. And so Paul could say, I want nothing to get in the way of the gospel of Christ. I don't even want some stupid argument over paychecks to get in the way of the gospel. You see, there's a lesson here for us. Not just for me as a minister, many lessons for me. There's lessons for you. Is the gospel the biggest and most significant thing in your mind and heart? Do you treasure it more than anything? Do you pour all of your efforts in the advancement of that gospel? Notice what Paul will actually say. Notice this. Notice what he says in verse 16. For if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting, for necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. Now, you're not called, all of you, to preach the gospel. You're called to share the gospel and to speak it and to share the scriptures. When you look at your life and all of your vocations and callings, all of them being legitimate, all of them being good, is your driving, motivating factor in your actions, woe to me if I do not spread the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. Because you know what? It's not just missionaries and pastors. This ought to be the driving motivator of every Christian. And you know what? If we're honest with ourselves, it's not so often. When we look at what we do, our activities, what we value, what we spend time on, what we talk about, the gospel really oftentimes gets delegated way down low. And you know, here's the beauty of the gospel. It's when we realize that and we realize how much we fall short that we go back to that gospel. We go back to that cross. And God makes us to see how big and amazing and uh, of what everlasting significance the crucified Son of God is. And we see Jesus Christ hanging on the cross, hands and feet nailed to the cross, crown of thorns on his head, blood poured out for you, the wrath of God being poured out on him. And when you see that he bore his cross for you, that he carried it there to the place of the skulls, that he took the 39 lashes on his backs, that by his stripes you are healed, then the gospel becomes, again, in your life, central. I have a good friend who has really helped me a lot in saying, what's in the driver's seat of your life? What's in the driver's seat? Everybody in this room finds functional approval in something. You find your functional approval in something. Something is in the driver's seat. Something makes the car go and leads the way in a certain direction. And if the gospel's not in the driver's seat, something else will be. And if the gospel's not in the driver's seat, we'll never live and act like Paul, who had the gospel in the driver's seat. And everything else, all the other doctrines, all the other interests in the passenger seat, it's where they should be. They're important, but they're not the gospel. And so we have to examine our lives and say, is my heart cry, woe to me, if I do not proclaim and spread and proclaim the gospel? Woe to me. Now, let me say, this is not a, this is not a legal call to you. It's not a call to beat yourself up. This is a call to re-examine your life, to say, 
the motivation that motivated Paul to do these great things. There's a great sermon um, by uh, Robert Murray McShane on the love of Christ. And McShane opens that sermon by asking the question, what was it that led the Apostle Paul to do all that he did? What made Paul so great? And McShane, in the sermon, he's expounding 2 Corinthians 5. Uh, the love of Christ compels us because we judge thus if one died for all, then all died. And he died for all that those who live should live no longer for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. And McShane says it was Christ's love for Paul. Amen. And think about Paul. Paul was a murderer. Yes, sir. Think about the guilt that Paul could have potentially carried around with him that could have crippled him and paralyzed him under the weight of what he had been. And yet the risen Christ... Have I not seen Jesus the Lord, met him, redeemed him, shed his love abroad in his heart? And you know what? When Jesus does that to us and we, we remember what we've been and what he is and what he's done for us, it starts to rewire us inside. So that you know what? Nick, who loves money way too much, I would lie to you if I didn't tell you that. So would every other minister. I'm sorry, they would. All of us who love things that we ought to not love the way we do and love them too much, God begins to rewire and he begins to put those things in the back seat and put the gospel in the front seat. And we begin to meditate on the cross and we begin to be motivated again and we begin to be fruitful Christians. You know, I don't know about you. I want to leave a mark. I have so many days, years left in my life. I don't know. God doesn't need me, doesn't need you. I want to leave a mark in history. I want to leave a mark for Jesus. Um, that's only going to happen when we are motivated in the way that Paul was motivated. We have rights. You have rights. You have many rights. We talk about rights all the time. Rights are a big subject in America right now. But when our rights become more important than the gospel and our rights take driver's seat, we're never going to leave a mark for Jesus. The gospel will be hindered. It will be. You know, I have to grow in this a lot. You have to grow in this a lot. That's as honest as I can be. I know we have to grow in this. And I know that God gives us grace in Christ. The same gospel, think about this, the same gospel that propels us forward is the same gospel that brings forgiveness and cleansing when we fail. Think about God's wisdom in that. The cross is everything. It's everything. It's what God uses to convert sinners. We'll hear more about that next week. It's what God uses to sanctify, to motivate, to free us from the love of our rights and to give us joy in Christ and to enable us to deny ourselves when need be for the sake of the gospel. Let him who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church this morning. Let's pray. Father, I and your people confess how much our hearts are often in love with this world, in love with our freedoms and our rights, and we do bless you for those freedoms and rights. We bless you, Lord, they are good, and you are a bountiful God, and that you even care for an animal like an ox, that you would give that animal rights and protections, and how much more that you care for your people and for your ministers. And yet, Lord, we confess that oftentimes the gospel has been relegated to the backseat of our lives, and we pray that you would make it that motivating and driving influence. Lord Jesus, we beg you this morning 
that you would make us to see your glory in your sufferings and in the glories that followed. We pray that you would fix our eyes steadfastly on you. You would enable us to lay aside every sin and every weight and everything that weighs us down and help us to run with endurance the race set before us, looking unto you. Enable us to act and be motivated for the sake of the gospel, that the gospel would be that driving thing in us, that our minds and hearts would be captivated by the truth of the Lord Jesus crucified for us and risen for us. Oh God, have mercy on us. We pray that you would renew us and strengthen us, for we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.